new series is based on Paul's statement in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, which after doing some research and preparing for today and the coming weeks, I've realized that this list that we are so fond of that many of us can recite by heart is, uh, it was almost an afterthought, really. <laughs> you know, Paul seems to have come to this point uh, sort of as a way of, of, well, I do this all the time. I'll try to explain something to somebody and then it suddenly dawns on me and I'll say, you know, it's like, and then I say that. And so when you listen with me to the chapter of Galatians 5, see if you don't hear that as well. And so we're certainly going to talk about those things. And honestly, if we were just going to cover those one a week, we'd do like nine weeks of messages, one about love and so on. But I think you're going to find out that there's a lot more going on in Paul's letter to the Galatians than just these fruits of the Spirit or this fruit of the Spirit, better, better said that way. Because fruit of the Spirit is something that is, is sort of an after effect. Fruit of the Spirit, we're going to find out, is something that is, is a result of God's grace and not the other way around, where we tend to think that we have to act a certain way in order to be Christian. And so if there's a theme that we can take from Galatians that I want us to focus on in the next several weeks, especially leading up to Pentecost and the birth of the church and the Holy Spirit, well, one of the things I really want you to hear is if you're trying to be a good Christian, stop it. <laughs> That's the message of Galatians. Don't try so hard. Because the harder you try, the further behind you get. And that's the message of Galatians, that, that trying to be a Christian isn't the way to be a Christian. Being born again in the Holy Spirit and living the Spirit-led life is the way to be a Christian. Living in God's grace is the way to be a Christian. That's the message of Galatians that I hope you take away from it. So let's take a minute now. And let's read Galatians chapter 5 together. Yeah, I want to do the whole chapter. And uh, you can find that on uh, page 1157 in your pew Bible. 1157, Galatians 5. I'll give you a second to find that. And uh, you'll have to forgive me because I can't read this without pausing from time to time with some of the things Paul says. If you don't think the Bible's funny, you just aren't reading it carefully enough. He says some pretty hysterical things in this, at least to me it's funny. Now, if you know me very well at all, you realize I have a bit of a twisted sense of humor. So there's always possibility it's the interpreter more than it is the actual word you're reading. So let's go ahead though, Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has sent us free. He has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, 
but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and one and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. See, he's calling out somebody. He's going after somebody and listen to this. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's funny. (laughs) For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now see, Paul, is he's talking to you. He's talking straight. Like he's in this moment, he's the pastor's pastor right here. And what is he saying? He's trying to get you to recognize that under the law, that is the old Mosaic law, it was always about trying to tame the flesh. It was always about trying to keep your flesh under control. And so what that resulted in is something that you hear among Christians sometimes called works righteousness. In other words, what made you righteous under the old law was how well you kept the law. And so it was all about appearances, really. It was all about this belief that if you looked and acted like a righteous person, then you were a righteous person. But we all know that uh, people can misrepresent themselves pretty well. There's some fine actors out there who can put on a great show, but in their private lives, they are far from righteous, far from morally exemplary. And so the appearance of righteousness 
really doesn't mean a whole lot about the nature of your soul. It doesn't say a whole lot about your relationship with God, or to put it more bluntly, it doesn't say a whole lot about God's evaluation of you. And I think that we can all agree that no matter how we interpret the Bible or interpret the law of God, one thing we're all pretty much in agreement about is, is that at some point in our lives, we're going to have to stand before God and his opinion of us is going to be very important to us in that moment. And the question is, what are you willing to bet on? What are you willing to bet your eternal existence on? Are you going to gamble that you lived a righteous life, that you've been a good person, and then based on that, you'll be judged favorably by God? Or do you need a different plan? Maybe one that's more of a sure thing, because after all, the problem with the law of the flesh or the law that is, is uh, determined according to outward appearances is that it's only measurable or quantifiable when it comes to what other people think. And so it was with, for example, the religious authorities in Jesus's day. They kept the law rigorously, and as long as their colleagues were impressed, they figured they were doing a pretty good job. You know, there's a saying you've probably heard before, uh, maybe not, I'm getting old and I forget that some things that seem familiar to me aren't as familiar to the coming generations, but a famous entertainer named Groucho Marx used to say, I wouldn't want to be a part of a club that would have me for a member. <laughs> right? Well, we could say that in this case about works righteousness. Just because you approve of me doesn't necessarily mean I'm okay. All it means is you approve of me. But who are you to approve of me? Who am I to approve of you? On what basis is my determination about your high moral values really justified? And so we come back again to the ultimate judge who is God the creator, the only one who really knows what righteousness is because he's the very essence of righteousness. He's the very essence of grace and love. And so we are thankfully given a new covenant through Christ Jesus, a covenant we'll recall in a few minutes at the Lord's table, a covenant that tells us that it is not because of how well we manage our flesh. It won't be about how well we manage our flesh, which means it's not about the words you say, the things you do, it's certainly not about the perceptions of you that come from others. There's only one judge whose opinion of you matters, and it's the Lord God, your creator. And he has already found you guilty. He's already found you less than worthy. Through the old law, he gave us a way to manage the flesh but unfortunately, under the old law, we started thinking that we were doing that better than we really were. We started thinking that if you did manage the flesh according to certain specific guidelines, that that made you highly righteous. But what it really did was it kept your immorality in check. 
Now, if we're honest, we all admit that we try to be good people. We try to uphold the, the, the standards that we have in common, but the truth is we all fail. I know I occasionally drift over the speed limit from time to time or don't come to a complete stop at a stop sign. I know that sometimes I find myself uh, flirting with somewhat of an unrighteous approach to the law of the land. It isn't that I'm a bad person, it's that I'm reckless and careless. I'm thoughtless. And sometimes I'm just tired and I succumb to temptation. And if that was all it took to ruin your place in heaven, to ruin your righteousness in the eyes of God, then it's no wonder that the Lord came up with a better solution than the old law of the flesh. So if you understand that, you can understand why the Apostle Paul is adamant. And he's not just adamant, let's face it, he's mad. As you read this criticism of this unknown person who is provoking them to try to go back to the old law in order to find their way forward to the new. He's basically dealing with people who are trying to convince new believers that they can't be righteous Christians until they became righteous Jews first. And this is his argument, that if you think that, then you really don't understand what it means to be a Christian in the first place. Now, you might think that makes this an old problem, but it's a very present and real problem because right now people are succumbing to this counterfeit Christianity, which might as well be a works righteousness of old Judaism or the old law. We still do it. We still think that if people around us approve of us, we're good. We still think that if we do certain things habitually, that makes us right in the eyes of God. We still give in to the idea that it doesn't really require a lot of change in us as long as we keep, keep paying our premiums on our get out of hell insurance. And this is the truth that a lot of us would rather not own. But this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is exactly what he's driving at. And that's why he says, you know, I'd like to get a hold of that guy and ask him if we can fix his problem the way he's telling you to fix yours. And you can read between the lines of that. The main thing that you need to understand is that Paul is preaching grace. What is grace? Grace is, well, it's, it's like I, let's say I host a big banquet at my house or maybe here at the church so I can get even more people to come. And I put out all the food I can afford to buy and I provide all the service I can manage to give and I feed you this wonderful, sumptuous banquet. Oh, wait, write this down. You should all see a movie called Babette's Feast. Great movie. Babette's Feast. If I did all of this for you, and then at the end, you came up to me and said, so how much do I owe you? You'd be missing the point of grace. You see, grace is unmerited favor. It's a desire fulfilled by the one who gives it for the sake of the one who receives it. God gives you grace because God just wants to. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. You know, 
I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've even had this happen to me with church friends as, I, as I've been their pastor, is I'll just be thinking of them while I'm, I don't know, at the store or something, and I'll see something that sort of reminds me of them, and I'll just pick it up and, and I'll say, hey, I thought about you when I saw this, and I give it to I've, I've literally had people give it back because they couldn't stand the idea of me giving them a gift. It bugged them. I have to admit, I found it very perplexing, but I literally have had people who refused my gift of grace just because I wanted to. And this is exactly what many of us do with the Lord. See, the problem with these Judaizers that, that Paul is dealing with in this letter to the Galatians, which is actually not one church, but many churches in a region. So he's, he's addressing thousands of new believers And what he's saying is you Judaizers want the best of both worlds. You want to earn it, and yet you want to also receive what you can't earn. And so you you want the gift, but somehow you want to figure out a way to make it look like you paid for it. And you can't do both. The thing about God's grace, or really anyone's grace, is, is that there's only one way to receive it. You just say thank you. And take it. And this is what Paul's driving at when he says, if you want to live a righteous life, if you want to live the Christian life, don't try. Because that's like trying to pay for something you can't afford. And if we really think through this process, we realize that paying for something you can't afford means that you're waiting until you've paid in full to receive it. (laughs) Which means you're not living it. Because you keep waiting until you've paid for it. Now, in a modern society like ours, we ought to be more than used to having things we can't afford and paying for them after we get them. We do it all the time. We own cars we haven't paid off yet. We own houses we haven't paid off yet. We own toys and, and gadgets and gizmos and even educations and diplomas and things that we haven't paid off yet. And we reap the benefit of those without giving a lot of thought. But for some reason, we've got this idea that if we pay in advance, we can then start living the Christian life. And the crazy thing about God's grace is there's no payment plan. It's a gift. He just gives it to you. And you know why? Because God wants to. It is why God orchestrates a plan that costs him more than anything God could possibly pay. It's the most God can pay. It's the highest price God can pay. And he paid it so that you could receive this free gift. (laughs) It's insane. It's crazy love. There's a book about that. And that's the point. He's crazy about you. Well, I'll give you a little secret. He is crazy about you, but only because he's crazy about his son more. God is so crazy about his son that he created you for his son. And despite the sin that separates you from the son, he lets the son pay the price so that his son can bring you back home to his house for the sake of his son. Okay, that's just crazy, which is why I know it's true. 
You know, I don't remember this exactly, but I do have this moment in my life when I was a young teenager, when I was thinking about Christmas, and I was, I think it was one of those coming of age moments because I was kind of transitioning from the old way that little kids think about Christmas, and y'all know what I mean by that, to this adult understanding of Christmas. And as I went through that process, I don't know exactly when or how long it took, but suddenly it just dawned on me like a revelation how absurd it is, how completely absurd it is that our Father in heaven does things the way he does. And yet it's the absurdity that affirms it to be true because it's not the way of the flesh. It's not the way people do things. It's this crazy, senseless, overwhelming love that you were just singing about. And so let's talk about that love as a sign right now. The first of the signs that Paul says you should look at or look for is is this love, this insane, ridiculous love of God the Father. So, so here's where I struggled even as I was preparing to share this with you this morning. Is to try to, how, do, how do I make this transition? I want you to hear that you can't do it on purpose. And I want you to hear that if you receive the gift that Christ gives you through his redemptive act and the Holy Spirit born in you, you are him. Remember we talked about that last Sunday for our Easter time together. We talked about how if you want to know where Christ is today, he's sitting right next to you. He's sitting in front of you or behind you. He's standing up here. Sure, they're not the best examples in the world, but he's there. And the series of messages that logically follow last week's message is this proof of how you can see him in you and in others. And one of the, well, the most important sign that he's here in you and in me is this absurd love of God. This love that defies all reason. And you know, the Apostle Paul didn't say it in Galatians, but he did say it to the churches at Corinth who were struggling with the flesh quite a lot. And there was this passage that some of you have heard in weddings and things, but you've mistakenly thought that it was about marriage when in fact it's about living the spirit-filled life. The fruit of the spirit that is love sounds like this as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will all pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, there you have it. If you want to know whether Christ is alive in you, don't judge that life in you by how well you entertain it or carry it or express it. Rather, just let it happen. And it will be evident in this love. It will be evident in love. The crazy thing about God's love is that he has given you the power of righteousness over sin. And the more you just take your hands off the wheel and let the spirit do what the spirit does in your life, the more likely you are to become sanctified all the more with each day. What a crazy idea. Somehow its craziness makes all sorts of sense. So what if it turns out you can't really do Christianity right? What if it turns out that you've got to stop trying so hard to be a good Christian? What if it turns out that loving others is something that happens as a natural consequence of being born again? That being that patience and understanding and all those things we just heard about from the letter to the Corinthians. What if all of that happens because fruit just naturally appears on a well-tended tree or vine or bush? It just happens. And maybe the thing to do is just lean into it. Just lean into it. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.